Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books and Jewish Studies podcast, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to David Arnovitz about his new book, The Koran Tanakh of the Land of Israel on Exodus, published by Koran in 2020. The Koran Tanakh of the Land of Israel offers an innovative and refreshing approach to the Hebrew Bible, by fusing extraordinary findings by modern scholars on the ancient Near East with the original Hebrew text and a brand new English translation by Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, the Koran Tanakh of the Land of Israel clarifies and explains the biblical narrative, laws, events, and prophecies in context with the milieu in which it took place. David, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. All right. Well, I'm a Balchuva. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, not the most hotbed of Jewish anything, but it's but it is that's up 120,000 Jews. And um, I had a whole high tech career until I was age 40. And with my wife and five kids in 1999, we moved to Israel. It was supposed to be a two-year sabbatical, but it ended up being, I think we're in the 23rd year of our two-year sabbatical. So we raised our five children here, but I didn't have to work really because I had two exits in America, in Atlanta, and um, I had the freedom to do what I wanted. So I took the tour guide class, and then I um, worked with Shalem as it became the Israel's first liberal arts college. I was the operations guy for that. Then I helped um, our crowd get off the ground. They're having a huge global summit this week. I think it's the next day or two at the um, con- con- convention center here. And then Matthew Miller, the other Matthew Miller, who owns Corin Publishers, and I actually came to Israel the same month in 1999. And we've been friends ever since. And when he came up with the idea for the series, he said, well, you're the one to do it because you can manage big projects and you have a Torah Tanakh background and you've got the tour guide class. And so all the pieces are there. And we said, we'll, we'll give it a shot and see how it comes out. Beautiful. It makes a lot of sense. And so if we're looking at the title of the book, so part of the title, of course, Koran makes sense. The publisher Tanakh is uh, the Hebrew Bible. Why specifically call it of the land of Israel? What exactly does it mean? And what do we mean to imply when we use that as part of the title? So the fact is that, that we're living now, the Jewish people have returned to the land of Israel. Now we're going on almost 75 years since the state was established. And in the last 200 years, there's been a tremendous amount of scholarship in the academic world about the time that the Tanakh happened in. And so we have access to information that Rashi wouldn't have known. And we're understanding the Tanakh through the eyes of somebody who would have lived at the time gives you a whole different understanding of what's going on in the Tanakh and also how revolutionary that it was. And so we're really looking at it from the standpoint of if you're in the land of Israel in the time of Abraham, in the time of Moshe, in the time of the kings, in the time of the exile to Babylonia, in the time of the return at, afterwards, you, you understand the Tanakh in a completely different way than a traditional person who's been learning it for their whole lives. 
And so just to pick up on that a little bit, so is there a different way that one might read the book if they're in the land and they're living there and they're experiencing the land versus someone in the diaspora who's not in the land and experiencing it in the same way? Well, look, I, I drive by places that are mentioned in the Tanakh every day. And when we drive somewhere and I have my kids in the back seat, well, not so much now, they're all grown, but before I said, what happened here? And as you're driving down the Jezreel Valley or you're driving by Megiddo or you're driving up north in Tiberias where a bunch of the Mishnah and the Talmud happens, you, you, you understand the geography and you can understand why battles took place in a certain, in a certain place. You can understand the topography. So it, it does make a difference when you, when you understand the, the lay of the land, but also the archaeology that's going on here ever since we came back to the to this country it opens up whole new vistas into the tanakh and it and it literally i always say it the tanakh jumps out of the ground here and i go to archaeology sites with some of the archaeologists that 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 work here and you can see that there's a destruction layer at the time that sancheriv would have been here and there's a destruction layer when the assyrians came and destroyed lachish and you can see it, and, and things happen all the time that reinforce what's going on in the Tanakh. I mean, something happened just two weeks ago. I'm working on Sefer Breshit now. You're, you're talking about Shemot. That's already three books ago. Um, we've, we're in, I'm already working on Sefer Breshit after I'm finishing Shemot, and then Shmuel, and then Vayikra, and then Bamidbar, and now I'm working on Breshit. But in Breshit, Abraham buys the cave of Machpelah, from the Hittites, well, whatever the Hittites were at the time. And um, he pays for them with 400 shekels of silver, over le for, for for a purchase. So up until two weeks ago, the only evidence we had in this area that silver was used for land transactions was from the Iron Age. Well, the Iron Age is, is David and afterwards. Abraham is way before. So I said, oh, it's an anachronism. They say, all the scholars always say there's anachronisms all over. It's they just it was the Torah was written much later, and they just kind of backfilled what they knew into the stories as they made them up much later. So they found a silver hoard up north of here that had silver in weight sizes, and it was used definitely for a land transaction from the time of Abraham. So everything that was said that, oh, that's an anachronism, it, it wasn't from there, all of a sudden it is from there. And it's okay that, that Abraham was using silver to, to buy the land. And so here it is, it's, it's coming out of the ground. And that, that happens all the time. And so if we pick up on that um, part of what you're saying, that this is a series, and so we're picking up now just on the, the first part of the series on Exodus. As you said, there have been other ones, and you just mentioned you're working on the volume on Genesis. So maybe we can discuss a little bit, why did we start, why did the series start with Exodus and not from Genesis? So the, the way the Koran works, it's, there's not a lot of money in books, especially in Jewish books, it's not a huge market. And so in order to just break even, the other Matthew Miller has to basically cover his R&D with donations. So people sponsor books, and based on what the sponsor wants is what you do. So um, we didn't really want to tackle Brayshit first because any kind of project like this, the, the, the startup is, is very hard because you have to figure out everything, what the design is like, what the process is like, what scholars you're going to use. It just, it's just a lot of work. 
And so we felt like the, all the minefields in, in Brashit, we, we should kind of push until we got th- our, our feet wet and, and got some experience with it. So we started with Shemot, which is kind of funny because it's the Korintonach of the land of Israel. None of Shemot happens in the land of Israel, but so far nobody's noticed that. And, um, but with what's going on in Egyptology, and then the Parsha that we're going to read um, this week, when Mishpatim, when it has all the laws, it's called the Covenant Code by academics, but there's just a whole string of laws that comes right after the Ten Commandments. If you understand that in terms of the other law collections that were from before the Torah and at the time of the Torah, then it gives you a whole different perspective into just how revolutionary what God gave us was at that time. So um, we, we did that first and um, because we didn't want to do Genesis first, basically, and we wanted to do some of the Torah. And then we did Samuel next because that actually did happen in the land of Israel. We have tons of archaeology for it. And um, we understand a lot about it because of the geography and, and archaeology and, and, and the sources that we have from the time. And so that became really the first big heavy hitter. And it's a much thicker book than Brashid. We did to the two books of Samuel in one, in one volume. So, so Exodus was, was fabulous. I went, to, um, I went to Egypt a couple of years ago with Joshua Berman. He took a Tanakh trip to, to Egypt, and it's just unbelievable how much the book of Exodus relates to Egypt of the New Kingdom. You mentioned about the size of the book. So you're speaking, I think, more about the, the number of pages. But one of the things which is really nice about the book, and in some ways also difficult depending on the context, is that the book is, is quite large. It's a large book, a lot of text, a lot of large images. Has there been, was there any thought about smaller versions, or do you feel that it really needs that large volume in order for it to be practical. Well, it, it really is the size of a coffee table book because it's meant to draw people into the Tanakh. And so it was really important for the book to be visually very appealing. And it's completely different. So Koran has blown out tremendous amount of books for the Jewish world. And there's just so many projects going on. But if you look at a Koran book like the Talmud that they did with Steinsaltz, that book is mostly for a Dafyomi, a Dafyomi learner. He's reading the middle part, and every once in a while he's going to look on the outside just to, to see if something that's related to the text. We're basically just trying to cover ground with the, with the commentary that's in line. In our book, we want you to flip through it like it's a coffee table book. And you want to, you want to look at the pictures and say, oh, what's that got to do with it? And then kind of it's an outside-in approach rather than an inside-out, and that's the way it was designed. So it's very visually clean and appealing, and, uh, <clears throat> and it's meant to be flipped through, and, and it really has to be experienced in that kind of atmosphere rather than taking it to shul and reading it while you should be listening to the Torah reading. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It'd be difficult for me to uh, bring along with the size that it is. Um, So just discussing a little bit about the editorial process. So you're the editor-in-chief of this uh, project, and there's other advisors, different contributors. There's a whole team involved in in this project. So how do the different pieces, how do they come together? What what was the role of the rabbinic advisor, the academic advisor, and, and how did all these people come together to create the work that we have here? So the other Matthew Miller gave me this project and, and basically it's just a, it's a big project and I'm a project manager. That's just what I do. And I've always done that. I've always been an organizer and, a, and um, budgets and schedules and all that kind of stuff. And in order to pull something like this together, you have to have that skill. But w- what I did was first I had to hire 
academic advisor because I'm not an academic. I don't have a, I don't have a PhD or anything. I have a master's in computer science. Um, and I've studied a lot of Torah, but nothing formal. So I have uh, Jeremiah Unterman, Jerry, is my academic advisor, and we are pretty much joined at the hip. And he keeps me honest because he has a rabbinic degree and a PhD in ancient Near East. He's written a book on the ethics of the Torah versus the ethics of the ancient Near East. He knows all the academic stuff. So <clears throat> what we've had to do was we, we go ahead and define the topics for each of the books from some primary sources that we, that we go to that, that, that just cover not only scholarship like biblical scholarships, which we can't really touch, um, but also the archaeology and, and the language and all these other things that we, that we need to cover. And then we pick the topics and then I find academics that write the articles in the areas that I need written in. And for each book, it's completely different. For Exodus, I have the beginning parts, all Egypt. And then you go to Mount Sinai, and then you go to the covenant code, the laws. And so you have to compare to all the ancient law collections of the time, the Hittites and the Mesopotamians. We don't really have anything from Egypt at the time. And then once we hit the Samuel, we have to get archeologists. And usually there's a utility infielder, a person that's got really good experience in scholarship and not deep in any one area, because there's a lot of articles that are pretty simple to write. They're short. And um, you just have to take the sources that we give you and, and just write them out. But then it goes through a process of, I review it, the academic editor reviews it. Then we um, send it out to a content editor who cleans up the language because it has to be consistent across all the different articles. And then it comes back and we pick the images. And then the whole thing goes to a proofreader and then then after we proofread it, we go into layout and layout because we have to proofread first because if the size of the article changes, you can't just slip the rest of the book. Every double page spread is designed as a, as a unit and you can't, you can't spill into the either side. So you have to keep it all pretty much self-contained. And then we proofread it again and then, and then we send it out to print. So it's, it's a whole process and I, and I have a whole little system that I keep track of things going out, coming back in and, um, and it's big. It's, 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 it's complicated, but, but now that we've got the machine running, it's, it's much easier than we first started. And so on the dust cover, it mentions also that Rabbi Weinreb is the rabbinic advisor. I don't know to what degree that's for this specific volume. It's it, more generally for Corin, but either way, so within that um, rule or that idea in general, so how exactly do you make sure that the book is, is kosher's in the sense that Koran, of course, is an Orthodox press and you want to be presenting things which are in line with Orthodox doctrine, dogma, et cetera. So how does that process work? Okay, so that's, that's the million dollar question, really. And it's a great question. We have to do what I'm calling Price is Right Orthodoxy. I don't know if you've ever seen the Price is Right. You might be too young to remember that. But basically, we want to do closest without going over. So we have to say that the Torah was given to Moshe at Sinai, which would have been the 13th century BCE, as, as far as we can tell. And David was a thousand, and we, we, we have that dating. And we say that the Torah is a unified text. And at the beginning of the book, there's the an introduction to the series that, that tells you exactly where we stand religiously and academically with the sources that we're using. So usually, 99% of the time, Jerry and I pretty much know what we can say and what we can't say. And a lot of times we'll just say this, this is a problem and we don't know. But because a lot of times there's a, for a while, there was no proof that there was a King David. 
And then they found an inscription that said Beit David on it. So now we have a David. But if he had written the book, then you would have had to say, well, we're not sure if David existed or not. So when we have a very sensitive issue about what we can say and what we can't say, we kick it up to Rav Weinrib because he's very involved with Corin in all kinds of different capacities. And um, he's the ultimate say. So but we've only had to come to him a half a dozen times with different, with different issues that, um, that, that we, we said, we've we got to make sure we finesse this the right way or we say it the right way or we don't, we don't step over the line. Because um, so far, we're not, we're not been excommunicated Although the other Matthew says that it would be good for business, we, but but right now we've only gotten very good reviews from far right to to left of modern orthodoxy, which is kind of our sweet spot of the market, or what we have to stay in order to keep the corn brand. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And so, if we're looking at the actual book itself, and so we said there's commentary, there's different essays about topics, and then I mentioned at the top that that the late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs wrote the translation um, in this volume. And then, of course, that translation is used in other Quran work as well. So how did that work in terms of the translation and then how it connected to the commentary? Because it won't always be the case that Rabbi Sachs would would have the same opinion about the different parts of the Exodus story and, and in line with the, the research. So how did you make sure or did you make sure that there was alignment between the commentary and the translation? Okay, so first of all, we don't use the word commentary because this is not a commentary. I, I can't come up to Rabbi Sachs's or Rashi's or any of these great men's ankles, forget, forget about their knees, in terms of parshanut. We call parshanut commentary, exegesis. We don't, we don't do that. We don't do any literary, you know, it says this here and that there, therefore that means this. That's not, that's not the purpose of the book. So Rabbi Sachs, Allah Shalom, he did the translation of just the Torah part of the Tanakh. Um, we, Corin felt that their translation of the Tanakh that was out there in English just did not read well. It wasn't, there wasn't anything that was really good that was, that was orthodox in character, that was really true to the text. And so the translation project was completely separate effort from, from what we do. Every once in a while, we'll, we'll, we, we weren't part of the review process for the translation. So a lot of times we'll see a word that only appears once or twice in the Tanakh. And we, we know what that word means because it's from Ugaritic or if it's, or it's from another language in the area. And, and we know the derivation and we know it's used in a certain way. And the translation picked what we would consider the wrong word for that, for that thing. And we'll make a note of that in, in the article about it. But um, for the most part, we just, we just take their translation. And when, when we Reference verses, we have to use obviously the Koran translation, but the but the Koran translation project was a, a massive, massive effort, way more complicated than than what I did, and very sensitive because any translation is also a commentary. But um, we, we relate to the to the translation, and when it's not really consistent with what we're saying, then we just note that we just say, you know, there's there's another way to look at it. And a lot of times, the translation is based on the on the traditional sources on the Rishonim, and they're you know they're from they're from the 10th century to the 15th century. And I didn't know any of this stuff. So thank you, first of all, for keeping me honest that it's not a commentary. I think that that's a good framework and something that we and I should keep in mind. So if we're thinking about the book, so we'll speak more about what the book is, of course, but I think it's also helpful to elaborate a bit on what it's not. So it's not a commentary. And then you, you hinted a little bit that in the introduction, you discuss what are the different red lines? What are the things that you're not doing based on, on orthodoxy and, and different doctrines and dogma? 
So maybe you could elaborate a bit on that. What is this book not trying to do? The book's not trying to explain the text other than to understand the content behind it. It's, 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 it's what the Christians would call a background Bible. It gives you background to what's going on based on what we know about the time. So there's no literary analysis. There is no, I mean, there's literary analysis because the Song of the Sea is exactly like Ramses's description of his victory of the Kadesh battle against the Hittites, but 50 years before the Exodus. Or, or, or 20 years before the Exodus, whatever, depends how you, how you put it. So um, we, we are basically only doing that particular task of, of relating it to the time. We're not trying to figure out what the sources were, who wrote it, who edited it, how many changes happened over the, over the centuries, copy errors, any of that. We don't, we don't do any of that. We're just doing what do we know from scholarship that's consistent with a unified text that was written, the Torah was written for, to, given to Moses at Sinai, and then the other books in the, in the Navi are written, you know, at the, at the time that they happened or shortly thereafter, according to what the Talmud would have said that they were written by. And one of the other aspects of the book is that the articles are labeled in different ways. So there's eight different labels. So there's archaeology, Egyptology, Near East, Mishkan, so that's tabernacle, language, geography, flora and fauna, and halachas, so Jewish law. Those are, are, are very nice sections, ways that you can think about the different types of articles. How early in the process did you come up with these specific ones, and were there other tags that you thought you might use but decided against it? We, we pretty much settled on these pretty early. What we did was we prototyped the first volume to understand how the process would work because from my software background, I always know that the 1.0 has a lot of bugs. And so you want to go ahead and make sure you do a couple of versions before you put it out for real. And so we, we, did, a, we did a beta version of, of a very small section of Exodus that was about 20 pages. And based on that, and then doing an entire sweep through Exodus and Samuel, which have pretty much the whole gamut of things that are going on, in, in the Tanakh, we, we came up with these categories and then we, we broke the articles down into four different lengths so that when we can give them out to the writers, we'd say, this is a, this is a hundred word article. This is a 250 word article. This is the double page spread that you see that gives the, the introduction to a big concept. And um, so it's pretty much st- stayed that way. Most of the articles are really the Near East topic because that's just so much that's there. Um, as, as you go, obviously, the first part of Exodus up to Mount Sinai is all Egyptology. Almost the whole thing's Egyptology. But then after that, it, it, there's, there's a lot of Near East. And then there was a lot of archaeology in Samuel. But the Halakha just kind of threw it in because I think that people would want to look in there and say, oh, well, that's where Rosh Chodesh comes from. Or that's where the Kiddush comes from. And so we have some of that. It's a little spice in there. But, but everything else is, is, is pretty much the standard stuff based on a, a sweep of a, of a few of the books of the Bible to see what the topics would be. And it, visually, it makes it, it makes it really nice because you can, you can, each, each one has an icon and a color and a label. So you, you know, I say, I don't want to read that. I want to I do flora and fauna. And you can just kind of whip through and see the animals if you want or, or whatever else you want to dive into. We've mentioned a number of things about the text, about the different essays. There's a big part of it as well, and we've covered it a little bit, but I want to dig in a little bit more. The images are a very nice, very beautiful part of the book and also informative because they teach us a lot about 
the different things which were part of the world of, of the Bible and of the text. So what was the process? It says in the dust cover, there's a four person team for the images team. How did you guys get the right images? What were the types of issues that you uh, came across when trying to get the images and their rights, et cetera? How was that like for you? So first of all, it's gotten much easier over the last couple of years because more and more is available in high resolution on the internet for as public domain. So we're very connected with the Antiquities Authority here, and they have a pretty easy process. If I have to find something, a cuneiform tablet from Megiddo, then I can go on their site and find it and then pay a certain amount of money to get the, the high-resolution image. But really, most of the images now come just from Wikipedia. I see something mentioned in the article. I run over to Wikimedia Commons and throw it in the search thing, and then an image comes up. And as long as it's in high res, then, um, then, we, then we take it and put it in the book. Uh, we try not to duplicate images, but um, there's some, some we pay for. There's, there's a fabulous site called Bible Places that has a really good repository of images that are all related to the Bible. And that's been a wonderful partner for me. And I've been taking a bunch of images from them and, and putting them in the book and, and paying them a, a royalty for each of the images. Um, and we've used some of the other big picture repository sites, but less and less because we're finding more and more of it just available out there for, for public domain. So you didn't but need to send a team to Egypt to take any of the pictures? Uh, no, I think I used one a picture because when we were there, it's a there's a there's a, there's a story just for really quickly that when the um, in the in the book of Numbers the the princes bring gifts to the tabernacle when they're dedicating the tabernacle and it says and it says each each of the ones to the tribes it's twelve times all the same stuff you fall asleep in shul when you're when you're going through it but it says kaf echad of ketoret. So kaf in modern Hebrew means hand, but it's the only time it's ever used that way in, in what, what is a kaf. And so when we were in a tomb in Egypt, we saw that the king was offering to the god incense on a spoon that was in the shape of a hand because they couldn't touch the god. They had to offer it there. So it was clearly something that we picked up from Egypt, and we took a picture of that, and that went in the book. So that, that, that kind of thing we did, but most, almost everything comes off the internet and then most of it's public domain. And we, we Photoshop it just to make it look good for the book because it has to be, you know, it, it, what, what looks good on the web does not necessarily look good in print. And so one of the most prominent, probably the most prominent image is, of course, on the cover. So why that image, if you can describe it a little bit and, and why you decided to choose that as a cover image? So for, for Exodus, this was a new thing that we were coming out with. And we really wanted it to jump out at you. And so half of it is King Tut's, um, his mask is just so unbelievably gorgeous with the gold and the colors. It's, it's just, a, it was also, it was one of the most important ever archaeological discoveries when they found King Tut's tomb in the 1920s. And um, so it's, it's half, it's visually just very striking. So the whole thing is about who's going to buy the book. You want to draw people to the book. And why, why not do that? And the second is, what's King Tut doing on a Tanakh? What are you, crazy? What's going on here? People are going to want to open it up and, and look in it. People that open up and look in it usually buy it. Um, and it's, 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 it's really marketing. Makes sense. It's uh, very effective. 
So before even turning the pages to the actual biblical text, and then before, and then there's an essay about about Egypt itself. But before that, there's a couple. There's a diagram of a, a timeline of all the different nations and empires, and then there's also a map. So what are the what's the point? What are the purposes of these, and how can one use them to enhance their study of the Tanakh? Well, the thing is, you're going to mention a lot of things that somebody who's in this world just knows. I mean, we know that the Bronze Age came before the Iron Age. Normal people don't necessarily know that. And so you're going to come into this article. And I don't want to say every time that we say the Bronze Age is it's from this year to that year, BCE. And it's when. So what we do is we put a timeline in the front so you can see not only what we're using as the academic names of the periods, but also what would have happened in the Tanakh in those periods. And for that, we, we, we do it very broad brush because there's so much debate about when certain things, like when does Abraham, there's all over the map um, where, 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 he might have, where he might have been. And so we, we, we put all that in a place so that you can always flip to the beginning and look and say, it says Bronze Age, it says, you just, you just know when it is. And then the ancient Near East map, you know, people don't really remember where Assyria and Babylonia and the Hittites and Egypt, people know where Egypt is for the most part, but all these other places, you kind of have to have a place where you can flip back and, and see, because we, we mentioned it over and over and over again. And Israel is smack in the middle of all the civilizations that were going on at the time, which is why we were so important back then and why we were at the crossroads and probably why God chose us to be there so that we could transmit out to all the civilizations that were around us, because they would have come, been coming through here to go back and forth. This question might be a little bit like um, asking who your favorite child is, but I'll ask it anyways, and we'll see how you answer. So there's a lot of really great stuff in here, a lot of great essays about all sorts of topics. We said eight different types of things that these essays could be about. So if you're thinking broadly, was there anything in specific, maybe a couple of examples that really surprised you, blew you away, inspired you, things that you just said, wow, that was, that was great. If I could have only written the book for this, it would have been enough. Well, so every, every book so far has had a wow, every single one. So the very first one, I, um, I started with an Egyptologist, Rocheli Shalomi Fenn, that used to be the um, curator of Egyptology at the Israel Museum. She wrote almost all of the Egyptology articles. And as we began to study the Yitziat Mitzrayim through the eyes of the new kingdom in Egypt, we, and we looked at the plagues, we said we were unbelievable how much God picked apart every aspect of Egypt with the plagues. Because hey, why, why didn't he just kill the firstborn and get us out of there? What's the big deal? But no, we had to do it step by step. So each of the plagues has a story and we don't have time to talk about it, but the ninth plague is darkness. And why was it ninth? Nobody died. It was just dark. I mean, there's a midrash that says a lot of the Jews died. The ones that weren't worthy, God, we don't do any midrash. We, we stay with the text. And so wh- why was it such a big deal? Why was it ninth? It was clearly very serious. But if you understand Egyptian religion and the God, the sun God goes into the netherworld at dusk and struggles with creatures in the netherworld and comes out of the netherworld to make the dawn happen. You mess that up, you've destroyed everything about the Egyptian religion. And the whole idea of the Egyptian, and this is in the essay of the beginning before the plagues, that the Pharaoh and the gods had to keep ma'at. They called it ma'at, which is cosmic order. So if you messed up the order, then the gods aren't gods, and the Pharaoh is not a god, and the Pharaoh is not even powerful. So 
basically God, and it said right after it says, and I executed judgment on the gods of Egypt. You know, you blow through that pasuk like it's nothing. But then you see, well, that's what he did. That's what God did with the plagues, and especially the ninth plague. Then it gives you a whole different understanding of what's going on in, in the text. And, and each, each, each book has something like that. Thinking about all the books as, as a whole, we said that there are certain things that you beta tested. You try to figure out how did that work and then perhaps iterated upon that in different ways. If you're thinking more broadly, was there anything that you did in the first book and you said, maybe I should have done it differently and then you changed it in the next ones? Or did you feel like you got it down pretty well in the first one and then just copied those different processes and ideas from, from that to the next ones? Well, I think, first of all, Exodus is harder because in the back of the book, you've got two parshas that talk about God's command on how to build the Mishkan. Then you have the golden calf. And then you have the last two parshas that completely repeat the same thing over again. So what am I going to do with that? I can't talk about the menorah and then talk about the menorah again. So we didn't know really how to deal with it. So what I did was I did the ancient Near East connections on the first two parshas and then on the last two we had a bunch of vis- visualizations of what everything would have looked like in other Koran uh, volumes and so we used a lot of that material over again so that you could see what it what it would have looked like according to one opinion i mean there's a bunch of opinions on what they would have looked like we don't have any visual um testimony from the time uh, other than the, the movie the ten commandments which we you know we know what we know what moses looked like but um, that's from Rabbi Soloveitchik. He's, he always does that joke. And um, so I think that we, we learned process-wise, there was some differences that we did to make it more efficient, to, to like doing the proofreading before and after the layout. That was something we learned from doing it, doing it the wrong way the first time. But I think that it, the only thing that we really did wrong with the, with the first one was was um, not putting enough images in. I think I think what we realized is that people really are into the images, and even though it was beautiful and it was really a, a different concept than anything people have done before in the Jewish world, um, I think that as you, we got to Samuel, it was even got more. And we also, we we did the maps better. We did we we improved the way we did our maps. It wasn't that important for Exodus because I mean, how they come at Egypt and how they got to Sinai, and that was pretty much it for for Egypt. But in Samuel, all kinds of stuff happens, and we have to do a lot. Of, there's a lot of maps in there, and we, we we came up with a much better way of doing the maps that was um that was just in time, really, for a book that needed it more. So we've covered a bunch of different things, but of course, we're really just scratching the surface because there's, there's so much more. Is there anything that you'd like to elaborate upon? Any other things I haven't asked you want to discuss? Well, I think that um as a, as a believing person that has to deal with the constant drumbeat of um, crises in faith. This has been a fabulous project for me because I, I study this stuff a lot and you just get to all these things. Whereas before you say, well, of course it never happened. Of course, this is just written much later. And it's so convincing because there's so much scholarship that's going on behind it. But, but as you see the process of scholarship and how things keep getting found out and how you can explain this thing through an orthodox person's eyes, I'm not saying that there, there aren't any problems. I mean, I think that there's, there's problems that are not solved yet, but you see so many problems that weren't solved and are now solved 
it helps you with your understanding of how it could have happened from a traditional standpoint that really kind of makes you understand the Tanakh better and also strengthens your faith in, in what's going on because you can see how much God turned the world upside down when he, when he gave us the Torah. And you see the different steps that he went through to take us through a certain um, process and gave us laws that were just completely different than what was going on at the time. He changed the concept of, of a slave. There, there is no slavery in, in Exodus. You have a, you're an indentured servant. You pay off a debt. In six years, you, you're free in Shemitah. That just completely changed everything. Or the daughters of Tzlachad, they have women have property rights. Unbelievable. And, and you know, you look at it through 21st century eyes and, okay, that's the way it should be. But then you look at it through somebody at the time and you, you said, wow, he just really turned the world upside down. That's, that's an inspiring way to, to end it off. So we've taken up a lot of your time, David. I'd like to ask you the traditional closing question of New Books Network. What are you working on next? So after Exodus, we did Samuel and then Leviticus has just come out. Originally, our plan was to do Leviticus and Numbers in the same volume because we're trying to keep the Tanakh down to a, a manageable number of volumes. But it turned out it was too big. It was bigger than Samuel, so we split it into two. So Numbers is already coming out of the printer now. And I'm working on Genesis now, and I've almost finished all the articles for Genesis, which is so interesting with um, just comparing to the ancient Near East and the patriarchs and I mean, just all the stories that are going on in there and the Egypt stuff at the end with, with Joseph. Um, but then I, I think that we're either going to do Kings or we're going to do um, Deuteronomy next. I think it can be, be nice to have a five volume set. I think it'd be a great gift box. I think it'd be a wonderful bar mitzvah present. So we might want to go ahead and tackle Deuteronomy and do it, but it, it depends on the funding. But um, God willing, I'll live long enough to finish the whole series and um, we'll have a whole set of Tanakh and, I'll have learned a ton by doing it, and hopefully, it's a, a good um, legacy for the and, and help the Jewish world and increase Jewish continuity and Jewish knowledge and love of the Tanakh. All right, I, I look forward to that. Very exciting. Thank you very much for having for having this conversation with me. Pleasure. We've been talking to Dave Arnovitz, editor of the Koran Tanakh of the Land of Israel and Exodus, published by Koran in 2020. Happy reading, my friends.